Have you ever walked past a dumpster and been like, yo, I wonder what's in that dumpster? I can put on these glasses. Let's start eating that trash can. <laughs> it is happening again. It is happening again. You're listening to the True Crime Dumpster Podcast with hosts Amy and... And Kevin. Yeah, still Kevin. Yep. Even though it's been a while, we're still us. Now there's more of us. There is more of us. That's why we're kind of talking with subdued voices because she's sleeping right now. So yeah, it's taken us a couple weeks to get this episode together. And we did take a month-long hiatus dealing with family stuff. So... We are pleased to announce that our daughter, Abigail, is four weeks old today. Today. Yay! And my dad is back home on the mend after being in the hospital for about a month, so just about as long as Abigail's been alive. And uh, last but not least, our sweet dog, Frecky, has completed radiation for cancer recently, so those are all the things that were kind of happening over the last month, month and a half. So it's been a lot. And everyone is on the mend yeah, so thank you for messages and tweets and re- whatever else they're called that we have received via social media and stuff and email. Like, it's really nice knowing that people actually listen to our podcast so we don't personally know. And so we really appreciate you guys. So this one is for you. Not just you, but Not also all the mothers out there. This is a Mother's Day one, right? Yes. We definitely felt like we needed to put the podcast on the back burner for a little bit while we dealt with things, but we're back with a crazy one this week that's been in the news relatively recently again. And so this week we say happy birthday to Abigail, our daughter, and we dedicate this episode to her as well as, like Kevin said, all the mothers out there because Mother's Day, don't forget, don't forget, Sunday, May 9th is Mother's Day. So if you forgot, you're welcome. You still have Get something time. for your mom or your mom-like people in your life. Well Some, said. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so imagine this. You give birth to four children and each, one by one, mysteriously die over a period of 10 years. Heartbreaking? Yes. Sketchy? Also, yes. Today, we explore the curious case of Kathleen Fulbig, either a cold-blooded baby killer or the unluckiest woman on earth. Yep, definitely yeah, those things. Yeah. yeah, that sums it up. Yeah. So Kathleen Megan Donovan, then Marlboro, and finally Fulbig. So she has three different last names, but we'll start off with Donovan. But we're just going to refer to as Kathleen to make things easy. Kathleen was born on June 14th, 1967 in New South Wales near Sydney, Australia. Shout out to our Australian listeners and Australian general because we like Australia. Hello to down under, I guess. Yes. Crikey. And like we said before, we are going to be working on another Australian case, hopefully very soon with the person who actually recommended it. So hopefully that'll be up in the coming, works soon. Yes. yes, up and coming. So Kathleen's life started with tragedy. When she was just 18 months old, her biological father, Thomas John Taffy, 
Britton stabbed her mother, Kathleen Mary Donovan, 24 times on a public sidewalk during a fight in December 1968. It is reported that he killed her because of money problems and that she was severely neglecting their child, young Kathleen. Thomas John Britton was a violent drunk who always seemed to have a lady around. A violent drunk he was, and his nickname was Taffy, so maybe that's what made him violent and drunk, but... Why would his nickname be Taffy? Because he's sticky? (laughs) You know, I didn't think about that. I thought maybe he got it inside the prison Um. for reasons we won't discuss here. But regardless, Taffy only spent eight months locked up for slashing the throat of his first wife. She lived. Thomas John Britton was also suspected of molesting young Kathleen due to disturbing behavior she started exhibiting soon after the murder of her mother. Taffy turned himself in to police the day after the killing. He was tried and convicted of murdering Kathleen Donovan and was sentenced to life imprisonment on May 26, 1969. He was deported back to England after serving 14 years. He and Kathleen never had any contact with one another again. So young and neglected Kathleen was orphaned and alone. She became a ward of the state and was placed into foster care with a couple, Mr. and Mrs. Platt. Mrs. Platt was the sister of the now-deceased Kathleen Donovan, young Kathleen's biological mother, and they looked after young Kathleen several times before her mother's death. Child services would stop by to do routine checkups at the house, and everything was going well until a report was filed in May 1970, just shy of Kathleen's third birthday. Mrs. Platt told the social worker that Kathleen wasn't learning basic social skills and would throw temper tantrums often. She was also very aggressive towards other children, but most disturbing was her obsessive masturbation. I kind of chuckled because it's fucking disturbing. Uh, She was seen on multiple occasions trying to insert things into herself. Additionally, she also cried and screamed almost incessantly. Needless to say, this behavior put a lot of strain on the Platt's marriage. Mrs. Platt complained to doctors that young Kathleen's behavior was declining fast. She was becoming more violent and would scream if he tried to correct her. Also, her masturbating and sex play was getting next level. So at three years old, young Kathleen was removed from their care and placed into the Badura Children's Home on July 18, 1970. Upon her entry into the children's home, a psychologist spent some time with Kathleen and determined she was borderline mentally... Back in the day, it's the R word. It's fine. You can say it, but like we definitely have different ways of saying. What that. would you say? Mentally delayed, um, differently abled, De- developmentally challenged. Yeah, developmental disability. Anyways, you get the picture. She was unresponsive and withdrawn. Kathleen never smiled and barely ever talked. Yet, as time went on, she did seem to somewhat come out of her shell. In September 1970, Kathleen moved into the home of the Marlboros. Like the cigarettes? Kind of. Oh. Um, Except for his R-O-U-G-H at the end, not R-O. But I'm saying it right? Yeah, I think so. Okay, cool. They were a couple who also <laughs> provided foster care and expressed a desire to adopt Kathleen. While living there, she was allegedly treated particularly by Deidre Marlboro. Deidre. Oh, Deidre. 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 Yeah, Deidre. 
While living there, she was allegedly treated particularly by Deidre Marlboro as a slave and not allowed to spend time with friends often. Kathleen left school in 1982 when she was just 15. With a limited education, she worked at several low-paying jobs before meeting and marrying Craig Fulbig at the age of 20. He was a 25-year-old steelworker with a steady income. They settled in Mayfield, a suburb of Newcastle, and even bought a house in 1987. Things were definitely looking up for Kathleen. Within a year of settling, Kathleen was pregnant. On February 1st, 1989, she gave birth to their first child, a son named Caleb. The baby was described as, quote, full-term and healthy. Five days later, Kathleen took him home. One morning while feeding him, Kathleen noticed that Caleb was having difficulty breathing and took him back to the hospital where doctors diagnosed him as having a lazy larynx. 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 <laughs> it's called laryngomalacia or something like that. And he would eventually outgrow it. It was mild anyhow, so the couple was able to take him right back home. However, at 8 p.m. on February 19th, 1989, Kathleen put Caleb in his crib to sleep. The next morning around 2 or 3 a.m., Craig Folbig awoke to Kathleen's screams. Running to the sunroom where the baby slept, Craig saw Kathleen standing over the crib screaming, My baby. Something is wrong with my baby. Craig said that he noticed Kathleen wasn't trying to resuscitate or revive him. Rather, he was wrapped in a blanket in his crib, warm to the touch. This didn't seem strange to him or really anyone until much later on. With no obvious signs of foul play or any suspicious markings or damage to the baby, Caleb's official cause of death was listed as SIDS, Sidden Infant Death Syndrome, or Cot Death. That's the Aussie term. It seems like it might be, or I think that maybe it was the original term British or before something. SIDS became the official Caught. term. Cot Death. Yeah. Basically, it's a non-diagnosis, unexplained or accidental asphyxiation. He was just 19 days old. The SIDS counselor at the hospital told them that it's rare or unheard of to have two babies die of SIDS, so she encouraged them to give it another go. For the most part, Craig was beside himself with grief. On the other hand, Catherine seemed to snack back to her old life relatively quickly, returning to a waitressing gig and hanging out with her friends. It was also noticed by family that Kathleen was indifferent towards babies whenever she was around them. This could be because she didn't actually like babies or some kind of avoidance behavior after the death of her own child. This was just speculation at the time, what was brought up by Craig and his family at her trial. Oh, spoiler alert. She's going to go to trial. <laughs> there you I mean, go. The name of the episode is Baby Killer. So. You probably have guessed it that, yeah. you know, at this point. Yeah. So regardless, seven months later, Kathleen was yet again pregnant. You're going to hear that a couple of times this episode. This So tr four every times. time she gets pregnant. You're going to hear it four times. <laughs> every time she gets pregnant, have a drink. So this time they followed all of the SIDS prevention with their home, repainting, reconfiguring things, and remodeling parts of the house to make it as safe as possible. Kathleen gave birth to another son, Patrick, in June of 1990. Craig took off three months from work to be at home with the baby and Kathleen. After that, he took a job as a car salesman and returned to work. Only a few months later, on October 18, 1990, as usual, Kathleen put Patrick to bed. Craig looked in on him at 10 p.m., and he appeared to be sleeping peacefully. The next morning at 3 a.m., 
Craig was again awoken by Kathleen's screams. According to the police statement, he rushed into Patrick's room and saw his wife standing over Patrick, who was lying in his cot. Mr. Fulbig picked up the baby and noted faint labored breathing. He commenced resuscitation until the ambulance arrived. Patrick regained consciousness, but was later found to have epilepsy and be blind. For his care, Craig said that it seemed like annoying chores for Kathleen to do rather than trying to keep their baby alive. When she got upset with the baby and or Craig, she would reportedly clinch her fists and growl. That is, um, I mean, health. that's not, that's normal. I mean, if you get, it just sounds wild animalish the way I guess we're describing it. But like, you know, <laughs> whenever, like. If I get really frustrated, I'm not like defending Kathleen at all. But like, if I get frustrated, I could be like, "Er, like, erg," you know. I don't know when I just knowing like what she's capable of potentially. When I when I think of her growling, I think of it being more like a wild animal. Yeah, I then like a grr. I'm so mad, you know. Uh, yeah, totally. I know. I think of something else. Like more like American Werewolf in London. Exactly. Or exactly. Needless to say, this put a huge strain on the Fulbig's relationship. Kathleen was totally withdrawn from their marriage, so Craig turned to her diary to give him insight. In her diary, she wrote that she felt unable to care for Patrick long-term and wanted out. She said that Patrick and Craig would both be better off without her. Armed with this information, he and his sister Carol staged an intervention in January of 1991. It worked, and she stayed. Gosh, I almost wish it that's, hadn't, you know? I know, it's bleak. So, Patrick had survived his first ordeal, but not for long. On the morning of February 13th, 1991, Kathleen called Craig at work, and according to the police statement said, It's happened again. Craig left work and arrived home just as the ambulances came. Patrick was taken to the hospital, but was dead on arrival. For you Twin Peaks fans out there, and I know Kevin, uh, you... No, I am a you Twin know of Peak it. fan by proxy. Yeah. There's um the the thing the giant always says, like it's happening again. Like anytime the kind of like cycle of like evil happens in the show, maybe that should be our intro. It is um, happening. I don't know again. if you've heard the podcast, but we like have an intro. It's pretty sweet. No, I meant, you know, the one that you make up for each episode. Oh. Sorry. <laughs> but anyways, so um that's what like I just imagine the giant saying that voice in a voice. Actually, this oh, you could do like a weird movie, like a Twin Peaksian movie on this. Like, if whole anyone scenario. out there listening knows David Lynch, put get him in contact with us. <laughs> just to say hi, we got to talk. <laughs> we just want to say hi. An autopsy was conducted, and the cause of death was acute asphyxiating event resulting from an epileptic fit. You would not have been able to say that. That's why. Yeah, thank you for I saving sure, me. The embarrassment I made sure to of give that, that one. one to me. Craig wallowed in his grief and lost his job. The world stopped for Craig, whereas Kathleen moved on with her life, getting a job, ironically, at Baby Co., an Australian chain of stores that specialized in baby goods. Well, it for you know her friends said she didn't really look like she liked babies, so getting a job at a baby place seems a little weird. Yeah. And having two of your own kind of die mysteriously. I don't know. It's weird. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah. 
So in late 1991, the Fulbigs moved to Thornton. A ta- oh, and something else you'll notice that they do is that each time a catastrophic event happens, they move. Whether it's houses or cities or whatever, it's never really that far. But like it's, you know, but that it makes sense. It's like a new start, you know. Yeah, but there's also that expression of wherever you go, there you are. Have you heard that? Um, I think I've seen that on the back of a car somewhere. <laughs> okay, but I mean, like, there is that idea of like, yes, there. It's symbolic of a fresh start, but it's not like a new place is gonna necessarily. I don't know. Just people who kind of use new places as like new starts. Yeah, the grass is always greener, kind of thing. Yeah, and it but isn't necessarily gonna there, solve it's anybody's problem. Just the same brown. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm trying to be, I'm working on my optimism. Yeah. So like I said, in 1991, the Fulbigs moved to Thornton, a town northwest of Newcastle. Kathleen began talking about wanting another baby. Craig was super not into the idea. He couldn't stand the thought of standing over another dead baby again. But Kathleen and his sister Carol worked on him. And a year later, Kathleen was pregnant. In October 1992, their first daughter, Sarah Kathleen, was born. She was born with a mild case of sleep apnea. So they had to have a sleep monitor that would go off every time she basically moved, which kept Kathleen awake all night. Craig could sleep through the alarms and alerts. She started feeling overwhelmed with her lack of sleep and the stresses of motherhood. She often took the baby over to Craig's sister's house to be watched. However, The sister commented on this, saying that Kathleen was basically missing raising Sarah if she was just always going to be bringing her over to her house. And so she kind of did the extreme opposite thing of never taking the baby over there and shutting herself off from the world. She really started to resent not being able to do the things that she wanted to do, like go out or go to the gym or get rid of the pregnancy weight. She felt that Craig was starting to get a roving eye around this time. She felt that the baby was keeping her away from being the person that she wanted to be. Everything was relatively normal for the first 11 months, meaning the baby hadn't died yet until Sarah was having trouble sleeping because of a cold she caught. On the morning of August 29th at 1.20 a.m., Sarah was dead, lying in a bed, motionless with limbs straight down to her sides. Craig stated that the same thing happened as the last times. Kathleen woke him up with her screams of distress, and he rushed in there to see her standing over the bed. Craig called 000, um, which is Australia's equivalent to 911 and equivalent to England's 999, right? You nailed it. Yep. So now you know if you're in Australia, it's 000. So like I said, Craig called 000 as he had done two times before. Emergency medical tried to resuscitate her for 40 minutes to no avail. Her autopsy showed a watery fluid in her lungs and tiny abrasions by her mouth that could be attributed to both SIDS and smothering. So they ruled it as SIDS, but the police had their eye on Kathleen now because this is baby number three. Three. The police interrogated the Fulbigs that night, wary of the story that now three children had all died of SIDS. Around this time, science and skepticism surrounded SIDS, and it wasn't quite as easily accepted as it had been in the past. Nonetheless, they were both let go and no charges were filed. 
Kathleen moved out of their house and into an apartment after the death of Sarah. She became closer to Craig's other sister, Sherry, and joined Jenny Craig to lose the pregnancy weight. They went out more. It seemed that Craig noticed this and possibly fearful of their permanent separation, he began to go to grief counseling. Eventually, Craig and Kathleen got back together, unfortunately, and in 1996... The couple moved to Singleton in the Hunter Valley to have yet another fresh start, which we will sound like a broken record in this episode of like baby dies. They have marital issues. She moves out. They get back together. They move to a new city. It's just like it's just like clockwork. You know, I know it's just like frustrating. It's just like letting this pattern kind of like happen. But at the same time, like we will talk about how there is the possibility that this stuff really is happening the way it's happening, but it seems that there is more sinister nature to it. Kathleen started working her magic on Craig again, convincing him to have another kid. He was firmly against it, not being able to go through another tragedy. He consulted with another doctor in Sydney who said that there wasn't a genetic pattern or reason why the next one would or could die of SIDS, so he relented. Within that year, Kathleen was... Let's say it all now. Time to drink. Pregnant again. No, your podcast player isn't broken or went backwards on accident. This is the fourth time that these two lovebirds decided to have yet another baby. On August 7th, 1997, Laura Elizabeth Fulbig was born. She was a happier baby. 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 (laughs) Who slept much better through the night than the others had. In her diary, which we will talk more about throughout the episode and later, she wrote that she actually loved this baby. Uh, basically to say she didn't actually love the three prior ones. Yes, that that's uh, a weird one. Yeah. She also wrote, quote, she's a fairly good natured baby. Thank goodness. It'll save her from the fate of her siblings. Yeah, that is a sketchy entry, too. I yep. think she was warned. The baby? That's what it says. It's so creepy. She, that was part of the quote yes. in the diary? Yes, it says, she's a fairly good-natured baby, thank goodness. It will save her from the fate of her siblings. I think she was warned. Like like God warned her or something? I know. Isn't that creepy? <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's scary. However, Craig had only read her diary that one time when they were having super bad marital problems, I think, after the death of the second kid. So he wasn't reading her diary anymore at this point. If he had, maybe the story would have a different ending. On January 29th, 1998, Kathleen also wrote in her diary, got so bad, I I nearly purposely dropped her on the floor and left her. I restrained enough to put her on the floor and walk away. I feel like the worst mother on this earth, scared that she'll leave me now like Sarah did. I knew I was short-tempered and cruel sometimes to her, and she left with a bit of help. Yeah. That uh, is just insanely incriminating, right? Yes. But again, it's not outright like, I murdered my baby. Laura made it to her first birthday, and it was officially the oldest living child they ever had. I know that just sounds ridiculous. Yeah. (laughs) After her first birthday, however, Laura started to be more troublesome than she had been in her first year. So, what do you think happened, Kevin? (sighs) She mysteriously (laughs) went to sleep and never woke up again. 
marriage problems and the threat of Catherine leaving. And yes, you guessed it, another dead baby. However, the day before Laura's death, the couple took a video of the happy, healthy 18-month-old in their backyard swimming pool and kicking gleefully. This would be used as evidence in Kathleen's future trial. Laura was perfectly healthy the day before her death. However, that night, it is noted that she was fussy and had a cold on February 27th, 1999. This time, EMT workers found Kathleen giving CPR to the still warm but dead child. Upon examination, it was found that Laura had myocarditis, a condition where clumps of white blood cells occur in her heart. So one of the doctors that was assessing Laura at the time was basically like there were a couple of doctors assessing her cause of death and all of that stuff because it you know at this point the police are definitely bringing in the medical community on this because they're just like this is too weird yeah SIDS doesn't happen four times and like there are doctors who are like we need to treat this kid as a pattern like we need to look at family history and then there were doctors who treated her as if she was a standalone case and so doctors who treated her as if she was a standalone case were like it's SIDS it's sad the end but then doctors who treated her as not a standalone case as like a pa- basically a pattern they were like well clearly she did something and so there there's a little there's a little bit of um i don't know it kind of depends on how you want to look at it if you look at Laura as a standalone case it looks like she died of natural causes but if you look at the family's pattern right it does seem sketchy right and so there are two ways to look at this case but if you're looking at Laura's case as a standalone then you're not looking at the whole picture Exactly, but it's not the doctor's responsibility to, you know, investigate the death of the child necessarily. They're just looking for medical causes. So that's where already the medical community is very split on like how to kind of diagnose her death. So that's why I just wanted to kind of throw that out there. And also remember the first time that one of the babies died, which was what, like 1989, right? This is now 10 years later. And a lot of medical advances have happened, especially from the late 80s to the late 90s. Lots and lots of things happened. So one thing to note is that SIDS cases were declining. Quote, in Australia, the number of SIDS cases had fallen from around 500 annually in the 80s to around only 100 now, thanks to better diagnosis and safe sleeping campaigns. Because yeah. at this point, I was a child of the 80s. You were a child of the 70s. Um, so we were probably in the, the same boat. Doctors' recommendations were to sleep Face on your down, stomach. Face down, ass up. Yeah. I think is the term medically. The technology that we have now are like these breathable mattresses and all this stuff. And like, you know, back in the day, bassinets were like lined with like really hardcore material that yeah, would smother kids. Barbed wire and broken glass. <laughs> but now they're, rough. they're everyone's saying no bumpers on the sides of bassinets or cribs because a kid could roll over and suffocate. It's not only now and it's also there was the back to sleep campaign. Like yep. put your kids back to the, the mattress. Yeah. Lay them on their back. I mean, we're both alive and we slept on our stomachs growing up, but you're only slightly damaged. And also they found that something that I've been researching since we've had a kid is that because I was kind of nervous to put our kid with a pacifier in her mouth. You've researched having a kid? (laughs) (laughs) Don't sound disgusted. But the pacifier at sleep, they said actually it decreases the like rate of SIDS because it basically ensures that they're breathing. If they're like have something in their mouth, which I was like super surprised about that. You know, I mean, don't 
come at me. Abigail doesn't sleep with a pacifier in her mouth every night, but you know, if she needs it, we give it to her. And apparently it helps with Sid's deaths. The beast was starting to awaken. She might make a cameo here soon. Yeah. So, like I said, they went down from about 500 500 annually in the 80s, and this is just Australia, to only about 199 when they were researching it, thanks to better diagnosis and safer sleeping campaigns. But experts warn that more needs to be done to ensure cases of foul play don't slip through the scientific net. And there was another study, I didn't write it down here, that said basically like, in one year, in the late 80s, they found that like 42 deaths of the 500 were actually attributed to like homicide, like murderous mothers, something crazy like that. So on February 27th, 1999, Laura, the fourth and final child of Kathleen and Craig Fulbig, died at the age of 18 months. So just to recap, child number one, Caleb Gibson, 19 days old, dead. Child number two. Patrick Allen, eight months old, dead. Child number three, Sarah Kathleen, 10 months old, dead. And child number four, Laura Elizabeth, 19 months. And it's, it's kind of interesting too. I didn't really notice this until I kind of looked at it all as a big picture here. Each one died a little bit older than the last. So 19 days, eight months, 10 months, 19 months. It's almost like she could... Again, if we're going to go in the direction of like she did this, right? Which, I mean, she that's she was found guilty of this crime. But it's almost like she gets used to being a mother a little bit longer and then breaks. So by the time that she had her 18th baby, the baby can possibly move out before <laughs> yeah. it gets killed. I know. Jesus Christ. Okay. So the diary. Kathleen had kept a diary. We've talked about it a little bit. And uh, she would vent frustrations and stress. And as you can probably tell by now, she did not take to motherhood very well. Like we mentioned before, Craig once found one of these diaries during a tumultuous time in their marriage, finding out Kathleen was about to leave the family, and they convinced her to stay. So after Laura, their fourth child, died, the marriage fell apart for good. Kathleen was a bit of a social butterfly, it seems. Uh, she got a boyfriend and moved out of her house she had with Craig. Is that correct, or did Craig move out? She moved out. Okay, yeah. I think I've heard both things, but... I think the idea is that she moved in with her boyfriend. But I believe they were still married at this time, right? It seems like it. I couldn't really get clarification. I don't think they potentially got divorced until she went to jail. So Craig is unbelievably bummed, understandably. While going through all the shit Kathleen left behind after the move, Craig found the newest of her diaries, because I think she destroyed all of them except this one. Yeah. And after scanning through some of the entries, he took the diary to authorities on May 19, 1999. Craig was interviewed by Detective Bernie Ryan and told the detective all the little things Kathleen did or said that never really sat well with Craig. Craig had a nagging suspicion about Kathleen and some of the things he read. You don't say. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe a little more than four, nagging. Yeah. After four kids dying as mysteriously and always in the same circumstance of her screaming over them. I mean, my suspicions would rise after baby number one, right? Or well, at least baby number, number two. one, you could say like, it was Sid's. Like, like fool me once, shame uh, on. Is it? Is it shame on me? Uh, or is it shame on you? Shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I think that's it. 
But I'm really bad. But with I'm pretty things. sure that baby number three would be full. Full me three times. Shame on both of us. <laughs> I guess it's two then, right? Shame. Yeah. Okay. That's the expression. I don't I'm know. glad we cleared this up. <laughs> <laughs> so these diary entries seem to confirm Craig's worst fears. Well, the full bigs were obviously on the authorities radar after Laura died, their fourth child. And police put a tap on their phones as well as bug their house for the months of July and August 1999. So when Craig came in with the diary, it was game on. Detective Ryan launched an investigation into the deaths of the four children. He consulted with Australia's leading expert on SIDS, Dr. Susan Beale. Dr. Beale made her name in the 90s when she started her back-to-sleep program, encouraging parents to lay their children on their backs, like we talked about. So SIDS usually occurs in babies from one to six months old. Caleb, the firstborn, was too young to fall into the classic SIDS case. The other three children were too old to fit into this window for SIDS cases. And... All four children had been found lying on their backs. So investigators believe the kids were smothered to death. July 23rd, 1999, Detective Ryan and Detective Senior Constable Marita Engdahl brought Kathleen in. They interrogated her for eight hours. During this interview, her story didn't quite match up to what she told responding officers the nights her children died. They asked Kathleen why she seemed to recover from these deaths faster than her husband Craig. Kathleen's mother, Kathleen Donovan, actually ditched out on two of her children in previous marriages. She just up and left. And it seems like she was about to do it again when she got stabbed to death by Kathleen's dad, Taffy. So maybe it was some weird mental thing, being okay after leaving your child's life. But Mrs. Fulbig told authorities she would just shut it out of her mind. She also told police she was pissed that Craig gave them her diaries. She felt betrayed. Detectives made Kathleen read some of her entries aloud, where she talked about losing control and other sketchy things, like about a baby crying and crying, and then one day it just stopped. And something to the effect, I think that Amy said, like one of the, the children dying with, with a little help. help. Yeah. yeah. Fucking sketchy. Also sketchy was Kathleen apparently rehearsing what she'd say when she'd be inevitably brought in by police. Uh, and this was recorded when their house was bugged. And that is also very fucking sketchy. On April 19th, 2001, after almost two years of investigation, Kathleen Folbig was formally charged with four counts of murder. On May 17th, Kathleen was granted bail and stayed with her boyfriend, Tony Lampkin, who she had been living with for seven months. Tony knew something was up by the way Kathleen acted, but he didn't know anything about the investigation until police came to arrest her. Oof. To find that out about your girlfriend after dating them for seven months? Rough. So, just a little bit about the trial. Kathleen's trial lasted seven weeks. The prosecution alleged that Kathleen murdered her four children by smothering them during periods of frustration. Their case relied on the improbability of all four children dying of natural causes, citing the now debunked Meadows Law, a law attributed to British pediatrician Roy Meadow with the tagline, one sudden infant death is a tragedy, two is suspicious, and three is murder until proven otherwise. So that... that That's kind of like the shame on you, shame on me, shame on the murderer. No. <laughs> No, I don't think that's what it is at all. It's just like 
there's not that many coincidences. Yeah, but there is sometimes. But also Occam's razor. There's so many little things. Say, I know. Yeah. I just wanted to say that. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, you you fit it in nicely. Well, just you know, the simplest answer is usually the, yeah. the dr- is usually the truth. But it's again, always lizard people. Just like we said at the beginning. Set the either, straight. Well, like we said at the beginning, like either she's a baby killer, which it really does seem like it at this point, right? Or she's the unluckiest woman who beat all the odds. Not odds Not you want to beat. Yet. But I'm just saying that like, you know, four There is a plot children, twist. Yeah, yeah, I know. During a jury replay of Kathleen's police interview, she attempted to run from the courtroom. She sort of tried to do escape, it sounds like. The defense made the case that Kathleen did not kill or harm her children and that she did not think that Craig was responsible either. Although prosecution witnesses were concerned about the lack of early warning signs in any of the children, the defense posed natural explanations for each of the events, such as caught death and the in case of Laura's death, myocarditis. The defense highlighted that Kathleen was a caring mother pointing to journal entries that showed the care and concern she gave her children and obviously omitting the ones where she basically said she killed them. Some of her acquaintances gave statements to investigators about her caring nature. Notice how I said acquaintances, not close people in her life, because I think that close people in her life probably would have said otherwise. It didn't seem like she had very many close people. No, I'm assuming coworkers. That's why it says acquaintances. I'm assuming like coworkers and customers. Because again, it doesn't. She's I mean, she not, did I go out she, and had a. She did have a social life. Yeah, but I think we're with with acquaintances. I don't yeah. think I think she didn't have like long term friendships. Um, those were kind of reserved to Craig's family. Which, I mean, if you think about it, she came from a foster family situation, and losing Craig and or his family would be just like losing, you know, just like losing her family over and over again. Like it, yeah, yeah. I, she did have a difficult upbringing. Yeah, no doubt. The defense pointed out that there was no direct admissions of guilt in killing the, her kids in the journal and that the in, that the entries indirectly suggested her responsibility that could be chalked up to a typ- typical grieving mother's guilt. Kathleen appeared genuinely distraught to the ambulance and police responders at the scene. They pointed out that no physical evidence could link Kathleen to murder. It was entirely circumstantial and there was very little consensus among the scientific experts who testified at trial. On May 21st, 2003, Kathleen was found guilty by the Supreme Court of New South Wales jury of the following crimes. Three counts of murder, one count of manslaughter, and one count of maliciously inflicting grievous bodily harm. On October 24th, 2003, Kathleen was sentenced to 40 years imprisonment with a non non-parole period of 30 years on february 17th 2005 the court reduced her sentence to 30 years with a non-parole period of 25 years on appeal due to the nature of her crimes kathleen resides in protective custody to prevent possible violence by other inmates yeah baby killers are kind of like in in female prisons are like rapists in or like child molesters in male prisons yeah they have a hard time Yeah. Nevertheless, after a transfer of prisons, Kathleen was savagely beaten by another inmate just this year on January 1st, 2021. Happy New Year. Yeah. 
On August 22nd, 2018, New South Wales Attorney General Mark Speakman announced that there would be an inquiry into the convictions to, quote, ensure public confidence in the administration of justice, end quote. It was in response to a petition presented by her supporters, which I believe got a lot of signatures. Quote, the petition appears to raise a doubt or question concerning the evidence as to the incidents of reported deaths of three or more infants in the same family attributed to unidentified natural causes in the proceedings leading to Ms. Fulbig's convictions, he said. However, in the 500-page report released in July of 2019, a former chief judge of the district court found he did not have any, quote, reasonable doubt as to the guilt of Kathleen Megan Fulbig for the offenses of which she was convicted. Kathleen's legal team promptly called for a review of the inquiry, citing bias. The new evidence was presented to the appeal to the New South Wales Court of Appeal. The appeal was rejected on March 24th, 2021, so just about a month ago. The appeal did not consider the new scientific evidence. So that's where Kathleen and her case stands today. What do you think? So this genetic thing that they found yeah. in the kids. Um, yeah. And it's and we didn't talk about it too, too much, but there's there's tons of articles on it. It's like over 90 scientists were like this. Genet there's a genetic mutation. What's it called? There's there's an acronym for it. Oh, I didn't. I don't remember. So we looked it up. We looked it up, and on the ABC News Australia news article, it says scientists in Denmark who have carried out biochemical experiments say the results show the mutation known as the Calm 2 G114R variant is, quote, likely pathogenic and, quote, likely caused the girl's deaths. So that's the genetic mutation that we're talking about that... Mm -hmm. That could actually absolve her of her crimes. Yeah. And so if you like search her case on the internet right now, like everything that comes up is about this new evidence. All the news articles are March 2021 as well. And wouldn't it be insane if it turns out she actually I mean, is? Is there a way to prove it, though? I don't think so. I mean, I don't. It just has to be on the trust. It has to be of some kind of appeals court it ha and which already heard her appeal was denied yeah her appeal was denied and it and, and it didn't consider the new scientific evidence which i don't know why it wouldn't it seems like that was the new information to ha to that led to the appeal yeah i mean she's been as far as inmate behavior goes she's been a really good inmate and i mean she's gotten a couple fights one over a toaster oh yeah i saw that um what was the deal with the toaster Apparently, you're not supposed to have toasters in your cells. And some she saw some lady carrying a toaster around and, and she tattled called her out, out out on it or like bashed her with the toaster or something. Yeah, it was like totally like apparently out of her nature. But she wait, Kathleen. Yeah, full big. Yeah. Wow. She wasn't the one with the toaster. No, she saw someone with the toaster. And it pissed her off. Yeah. And beat him. She thought, up. It was a, she thought it was a baby. Yeah. Not on my watch. That's no toasters here. That's strange. Yeah. But I think beyond that, uh, she got beat up. She was transferred into that prison that uh, Amy was talking about where she got beat up on. Yeah, it was just this year. New Year's, yeah. Gosh. Yeah, I mean, the way that we obviously talked about her during the episode was that she was guilty. 
but obviously now that we're kind of rehashing things we're and we definitely want to look at the other side like the thing is she's been convicted like anything yeah. that we're saying is not it's 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 we're using like court documents and like you know credible sources and stuff but I mean, there is that nag- nagging question in the back of your head, which is like, what if she is innocent, you know? And and, and it, ugh, I don't think Probable it's cause. likely. I don't, <laughs> but I don't think it's likely. But We're the fact that there's cause, reasonable right? doubt. Reasonable doubt. That's what I'm yeah. Saying. I was like, probable cause. Yeah. Derp. But like, I but this is Australian courts. Um, they might not have that level of scrutiny. Well, yeah, maybe not. Yeah, because that's that's the rule of U.S. courts is that if there's a reasonable doubt that you can't really convict them, but that there are other countries who have the flip. You got to bow to the queen. You have to you have to prove that they did it as opposed to just have reasonable doubt. So anyways, that's where it is. Yeah. So that's all to say. Happy Mother's Day. We could have just said Happy Mother's Day. (laughs) (laughs) But then who would listen to that? You can join our True Crime Dumpster Facebook group. You can follow us on Twitter at TC Dumpster and on Instagram at True Crime Dumpster. You can email us at truecrimedumpster at gmail.com. You can listen to our show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, and Spotify, and now YouTube. There's other, uh, there's many other platforms. <laughs> and many other platforms. <laughs> Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends about our podcast. Every review, rating, and referral helps us to get a larger audience. Tune in next time as we continue talking out the trash. Bye now. Bye. It's nice to see you again. <laughs> well, we can't really see you. All right, turn it off. <laughs>